Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Of you. Beautiful to be with you. I'm Jess, a grateful sexaholic. It's so beautiful to be here in Southern California because this place has meant so much to me as a part of my recovery. And my roots here go back a long ways. It's also particularly beautiful that I have a, a chance to speak to Essanons along with SAs because, as you'll see from my story, the Essanon in our house played a big part in my recovery at very crucial stages of it. So it's so good for me to, to be here with you. As I say, I'm just a grateful sexaholic. I did not lust yesterday. I have been lust-free for a goodly number of days. Those days add up to 3,984 days. For that, I am never sufficiently grateful. Because of 17 years of 12-step life before I got to SA, my 10-plus years in SA have been focused on the 12th step. I I worked the first, or reworked the first nine steps on SA in my first three months in the program. Since then, as Chuck C. and Clancy recommended, I've spent my life working on the last three steps, searching only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. This work has shown me that lust is the central issue in my life. All sexual sobriety is, is what happens when you are lust-free. You can get sexual sobriety and still be lusting, but it isn't worth much in my view. The most extreme example was the guy who long ago in our program with a very generous IQ convinced himself that not masturbating meant he was sexually sober. So he would masturbate to the point of ejaculation and stop. That was his technical sexual sobriety but he kept slipping for some reason. (laughs) His exaggerated use of lust while staying technically sober by his interpretation of our program to me shows us our real enemy of lust. If you play with any lust, it is like playing with the tiger. The tiger will probably get you. If you stay lust-free and stop lusting instantly when it comes, you can't act out, and sexual sobriety is inevitable. Lust is very pervasive in today's world, but I believe lust has no special power. It is our ego that has the power. It is the ego that has always been the enemy. What the ego uses to destroy us is the problem. 
that it uses lust is a detail. We are all, as the Cheyenne feel, born separate and alone. And all of our lives are spent in a spiritual quest to find the God of each of our own understandings. But when people are born separate and alone, there's a great deal of pain. And the pain finds various ways to cushion itself, or we find various ways to insulate ourselves from that pain. And for us in this room, it is lust or the preoccupation with another luster. So since the beginning of time, we have each guy had to come to God. So the minute we are ready for the prayer, God help me, the prayer works perfectly. What is the spiritual sickness of lust? At first we see it as wanting sexual stimulation at that moment instead of what God is offering us, including the particularly painful lesson we need to learn from or the painful lessons we learn as we're trying to grow up. Instead, we ran away into our addiction and never grew up. Later we come to see lusting is wanting anything other than what God is offering us each moment. My story tells how lust killed my life as one of the original trusted servants of another 12-step program. I was in that other 12-step program for 17 years and because of life could never realize the promise of that program that the other people in that program were regularly realizing. And my story tells how stopping all lusting instantly and seeing lust for what it really is has led me to a new life that I didn't even know existed. Say nothing of knowing it was possible for me. So to me, this program is only about one thing, lust. All the rest is just details. Lust is the only issue. Sexual sobriety is the inevitable result. Lust is the only issue. Sexual sobriety is the inevitable result. Lust robbed me of real life from age 7 to age 57. Lust cost me 50 years of life. No wonder I wanted to stop all lusting the minute you told me that my lifelong friend was really my enemy. I had never suspected him, lust. I thought he was my friend. And no wonder, so no wonder I was immediately grateful. And most important of all, since you came to me ten years ago, and told me who the enemy was, this fellowship has given me the safe haven where I could seek a lust-free life. I know that I'm a sexaholic and will lust until three days after I'm dead. (laughs) But to me, lust-free means that the minute I'm aware, the instant, not the minute, the instant that I'm aware that I'm lusting, I immediately ask God's help to take it away. That's what I mean by lust-free. I don't mean that I don't have the first thought. I will never stop having those first thoughts. But I have to be willing, the instant I'm aware of that lust-thought, to ask for God's help.
as I've progressed down your path, I have found that a lust-free path has led me to a beauty and a joy of life. I had always sought since a young man, but didn't know it was possible. This is a talk I've been thinking about for a number of years. I was going to write an anonymous book about it as a tribute to this program for the services that you have rendered me and as a service back to the program. But then you asked me to speak to you on this subject first in Nashville and now in here, and that is sufficient. It gives me a chance to put down what I feel is so important to me and the big thing that you that I have learned from this program. And I've had some very special opportunities in this program some, and some very special gifts. So like so many of my books were said to a group, so this talk is my experience, strength, and hope, and my book to you about what you gave me. Our program is one of attraction rather than promotion. I was taught that in the fall of 1966 in my first one of those tw other 12-step meetings. I took my wife to a meeting at her request. I stayed because of the warmth and love I felt in that meeting. It was their love that attracted me. Their love for me opened my heart to them. Their love for me started the healing I needed in my life. Their love for me caught me and held me long enough so that I could start learning. It was their love that attracted me. Then the old-time AAs in Bozeman, Montana, when we moved there a year later, started teaching this crazy guy in 1967. Those old AAs taught me who I was over and over again, a child of God. Those old AAs taught me that there weren't two parts to this program, the, the, uh, the, the regular part and the God part. They taught me there was only one part of the program, the God part. For 16 years, I went to my meetings and AA open meetings. But it is so significant that you asked me to speak on this issue in the 12th step. Because in my 12th step work in Bozeman, in that other program, my life was an almost complete failure in attracting people to that program. A couple of years into that program, my wife and I were asked to help keep that program out of the hands of the crazy man who ran it in, as his own private kingdom. We were two of the original trusted servants who started a new national group and on AA-based type organization. We helped write the original book, and our stories were the first ones in the book. I tell you these things not to brag, but so you can see the horror I felt as the years went by in that program. Through my seven books, I carried the message of that program to hundreds and hundreds of people. But one thing increasingly horrified me. I couldn't carry the message in my own town through my own life. My words in my book were beautiful and powerful. My life wasn't beautiful and powerful. The people who read my books were attracted to the program in droves. But the people who read the big book of my life didn't want any. Yet when my wife dropped out of the flourishing Bozeman group, the membership dropped way down, and it just barely stayed alive for the last five years that I was in that program. 
So I had five years of failure in my life at 12-stepping in another program. I saw my failure and couldn't understand it. That was one thing that was making me ready for this program. The other thing was a volcano of sexual addiction that blew up in my face in 1969. I I would ask God to help me each morning and slip again. And this was while practicing another 12-step program. And to me, it's a beautiful demonstration of how, in a way, each of these programs is so specialized that Bill and Bob both separately prayed strenuously to God for a number of years through the Oxford Movement and with people around them in the Oxford Movement for their recovery. And it did not work. But it was only in that special magic that these 12-step programs present us that they prayed to God in the presence of another alcoholic and their prayer was answered. And to me, that's the magic of this program. But the presence of an alcoholic to me is not, well, as my own story shows, is not an adequate presence to have relief from my sexaholism. I had an old-time Skid Row AA sponsor all those years that could not relieve my sexaholism. It was until not until I met you that those prayers could work. So I would wake up in the middle of the night with fire in my belly, wondering why I couldn't stop. I got into affairs. Then in July of 1976, in a Westwood, California bookstore, I had an awakening. I realized that my wife was the person in the, that I most loved in this world and most wanted to be with. But if that was the case, why didn't I act like it? Why, when there was trouble with her, would I put my tail between my legs and crawl like a dog in fear from her? So I saw that I needed to stop the affair. I needed to go home and attempt to learn to be responsible and to be a man. And this was in 76, in July. So I had white-knuckle sobriety in another 12-step program, white-knuckle essay sobriety in another 12-step program. Jackie thought I was trying to torture her. I knew there was something wrong in my marriage and with women, but I didn't know what it was. And I had stopped the acting out. There was only an only occasional use of porno from the satellite dish. But that, uh, and that was a, like a once-in-a-month kind of deal, not a daily or even weekly deal. And through this, I was running a school of life in the summer and winter that people came to from all over the country. So here I was in a 12-step program that I couldn't attract anybody to. I was teaching the good life to other people, but something was wrong with mine, and I didn't know what. And then thanks to the blessing of this program and the uh, visionary foresight of a man in this room, in 1983, there were... There was a program written down on paper, and there was a man in in Phoenix with his name, and I happened to be a Montana guy who happened to be in one of the few towns that had a working essay group at that time. The minister was going around town telling about his descent into sexual addiction and how he got to the, the point where he was looking out over his congregation and deciding what woman in that congregation he would have sex with that night 
at some little motel in their small town. He had gone to the bottom and was, in a sense, desperately saying, catch me and stop. And that story made a lot of comments around the 12, or made a lot of comment around the 12-step community of, of Phoenix, fortunately. So all of a sudden, after some episode of me coming on to some woman, you know, which is just my natural style, I walk into a place where there's women, I start driving them and telling them all kinds of stuff. But all of a sudden, my wife said, handed me a folder with two phone numbers on it, and she said, you get an essay or get out. So that's the first thing my little lesson on did for me. She made it very clear. So I called the phone number, and it was Kent who had just come in from the first Dear Abby letter. And he had gotten the Phoenix group changed from SAA to SA, which made a vital difference, because there's no lust in those other two programs of the three. So Kent said, Jess, it's lust, it's what's in your head that's killing you. Because I quit all the acting out, and I'd been looking for an answer for years, I realized, my God, that's the answer. And it was the greatest relief I have ever felt. And that's why from that that first essay meeting I ever went to, I said, I'm just, I'm a grateful sexaholic. Because I was so grateful to know what the answer was. The way I used lust most principally was as my sleeping pill. I would lie beside my wife in bed and fantasizing having sex with another woman. Or as a tranquilizer, when uh, my wife would call me on something and being uh, inadequate, I would feel frightened and threatened and defensive and all kinds of other stuff and think of all these women who loved me so. Well, like some of them tried to blackmail me and various other things, but they really did love me. They just <laughs> had these temporary little problems that getting in the way of our true love. <laughs> so from the start, I had a ton of lusting to stop. That was why my story is titled, in the little storybook, It Was All in My Head. But I saw I got the same relief from stopping lusting that all the others got from stopping lots of lusting out and lots of acting out, or lots of acting out and lots of lusting. As an experimental psychologist, it isn't hard to understand from that that it must be lusting that is the problem. When if you're just lusting, and I've seen many others in that boat since then, and acting out, and you get the same result from stopping both that, you, that a person, another person does just from stopping the lusting, the acting out must not have do, much to do with it. And I don't think it does. I think it's primarily the lusting, and I think that the lusting that we do in our heads is far more serious than we can ever conceive. Because to me, when I enact that little play in my head, it is happening there. I act out when I lust. And then whether I act out again, the real, so-called real situation is to me inconsequent. But because I was so sick of what lust had cost me and what it had taken me down to, I quit sexual lust as totally as I possibly could. 
and I had all the tools that I needed from my other, from my 12-step work and good sponsorship. I knew the program was all God and believed it totally. I just needed to know what I had to stop. And I had to, I know I needed you because you were the only people with whom I could, with whose presence it was possible for me to stop. Because I had tried to stop lusting, or I had tried to stop sexually acting out before I got here for years, and I couldn't stop it. But the minute I walked through these doors, God helped me work. And it never did before, but now it did. So God helped me. And the God helped me prayer and the Our Father were my answers. The way that I used uh, those two pro- things for lust, and this is the way I still use them, is when I find myself lusting, I say, God help me, God help me, until the lusting stopped. And very often it would stop. But the, some of the lust attacks that I had were very persistent, and uh, I would say, God help me, five to uh, ten times, and it wouldn't stop. And then I would go into a longer prayer, which for me that I used was the Our Father. And I'd say the Our Father, and I'd see myself lusting underneath the Our Father. And I'd say the Our Father over again, and I'd still be lusting. It doesn't, there's no magic in any one of these prayers. Whatever your religious preference is, that's the prayer to use. It's got nothing to do with any particular prayer. If you're a Muslim, use Muslim prayers. But the point is that I have seen now is that if I am praying, lust can not work on me very hard. It isn't something like holding the cross up to keep the devil away. That's not it. The point is, if I'm praying, lust ain't getting my complete attention. And lust eats my lunch only when it has my complete attention, because then it can turn my crank and get in my guts and produce all the adrenalines and all those tons of physiological and hormonal reactions that are the tranquilizer, that are the hit. I remember I was in an NA, NA, or, uh, essay meeting in Phoenix, and I was saying at that meeting, I said, I've never used the hard drugs. But I said, that hit of going after a woman, I said, that has got to be way up there. And one of the guys at our meeting says, I'm in Narcotics Anonymous, and so he said, I've used, I've mainlined heroin. And he said, going after a woman, he said, is stronger for me than mainlining heroin. So that's the kind of drug we've got instantly available and have had available to us from the time we were five years old. That's why I think we're sicker than most. (laughs) But the good side of that is we get a lot more benefit from recovery than most. So when I came into SA in Phoenix in March of 83, I found to my horror quickly that I was going to have to leave 30 days later to go uh, to some family weeks for a couple of my kids in Oklahoma City. So I only had 30 days. So I did a quick fourth and fifth step with my sponsor there and uh, used the meetings as hard as I could. And in 30 days, my shame and guilt started to go away. I couldn't believe it. I went to Oklahoma City and my two, two of my kids who were there were counselors, alcoholism counselors, and they both said to me, Dad, you're different. I thought, my God, it's so quick. But when you're thinking the kind of things I'm thinking and don't feel guilty, there's something wrong with you. So when I quit thinking the things I was thinking, I quit feeling a lot of the shame and guilt right away. It wasn't some historic thing from childhood. 
So I went to Oklahoma City and gave a talk, and Sylvia heard it and uh, realized she was one of us. And we had a meeting going in Oklahoma City. And she and three other women came to our first meeting. I went to Provo about after 90 days of sobriety and gave a talk to overeaters there because of my books and but said I don't know about overeating uh, but I do know about sexual addiction and told my essay story and at the end of the meeting 15 people signed up for being interested in starting an essay group. One of them was uh, Tandra from Salt Lake City. In the summer I went to or rather in the summer I went to Bozeman and uh, spoke there at my school of life and there were some people, one was from Los Angeles here and he joined the essay group here and uh, another guy was from uh, Edmonton and he started a group there and then a, a group got started in Bozeman. I went to Minneapolis to make amends to my 12-step program and told my story there and uh, a couple people heard me and they started into groups in, in Minneapolis and in other places. I went to Seattle, our family did, to talk to uh, alcoholics. And uh, in the evening I had a meeting for people who were sexually addicted and the meeting that it started up in Seattle that had died out there. Like my son said, Dad, he said, you're just like Johnny Appleseed. Wherever you go, a meeting starts up. Was it me and my charisma? Obviously not. Me and my charisma didn't work before. But all of a sudden it did. I think it was the lust-free spirit. I think that's the only difference. I couldn't see why others would play with lust and weren't willing to stop like I was. But I had all these things that I told you about and it's come since to see that I I had lost 50 years to lust and not very many people have lost 50 years to lust. So I was more ready than most. I had a lot of training in 12-step programs that a lot of people didn't have. So I had some very, very special blessings and very, very fortunate graces when that made me as willing as I was. So it helped me gradually understand why somebody would come in and still fool around with this stuff. Excuse the expression, but out in the street they call heroin shit. And to me, I, this is shit, this stuff. And I don't want any of it. At all. Lust nearly cost me my marriage. Lust smashed every value I held dear. Lust made a mockery of my life. Lust robbed me of my integrity. Lust made it impossible to really practice my other program. And that made it impossible to attract others to that program. So I had so many reasons for giving up lust that others don't have. That's why I said I was a grateful sexaholic. I was grateful for it because that's what it took for me to break out of my prison and to smash a hole in my big eagle. So I had two adventures in this program. One was my adventure in fellowship where I had reached out to others in every way I could. It's always hard for me to reach out because of my isolation, whether to the phone or letter or what have you, in person. But I was able to do it. So using the AA idea, I acted my way to right thinking. Do it and the, do the action and the thinking will follow. 
My second adventure was with lust, and that adventure has carried me home. My wife uh, had five years in a second 12-step program, and she started teaching me that lust was more than just sexual lust, that it was a far wider thing than that. It was greed and a whole bunch of other things. And then I had some beautiful people in this program who came and taught me some lessons, like Gordon from from Galveston came and told me about how his family had confronted him on his profanity. And they said, Gordon, we wish you would not be so profane. It bothers us. And he came up with profanity sobriety. And as he told me the story, I realized I needed profanity sobriety too, because there's a hit in using profanity. So I got profanity sobriety fairly well. (laughs) Then I saw I was getting a hit from driving too fast and looking for the policeman in the rearview mirror. So I saw I needed traffic sobriety. (laughs) So I got traffic sobriety. But it kind of irritated my family because a lot of times they'd be following along behind me and I'd come from a 45-mile zone down to a 35-mile zone, I'd practically hit the brakes and screech down. I'd probably get rear-ended by them, and it aggravated them. So I, I saw I needed not to be so literal and dogmatic. I tend to go to excess in most everything. <laughs> so I And I looked at anger, and that's a drug. And I looked at resentment, and that's a drug. And I saw that it's only an even spirit. So gradually I kept finding each of those drugs and shutting down the assembly line for that drug factory. So eventually the drug factory got pretty well shut down. And as I did, my whole insides changed and got real quiet. It's like Ray Nitschke was a real hellraiser in the old Green Bay Packers and he got married and settled down and had a couple of kids and his wife was really strict. And somebody said, Ray, how is it like that you're living this new life now? He said, it's quiet, real quiet. (laughs) And that's what's happened inside to me. And one of the things that I had a picture taken a while back in just uh, for some body work I was doing and my shoulders were way up like this. When your shoulders are up like this, when you go and buy a suit coat, they got to take some of the stuff below the collar to make the sucker fit. And I thought that was kind of manly, you know, big square shoulders. I started looking at it, and no, that's goofy. <laughs> it's a guy who's holding the world and, you know, uh, carrying the world around on his shoulders. And one of the things that's happened in the last 10 years is my shoulders have dropped about an inch at the points. And now I can take a suit off the rack and put it on, and it most of the time fairly well fits. So the, the whole body changed. There's a line in the problem. We went for the connection that had the magic. But I've now found the real connection and the real magic. As I've been moving among you in these recent conferences, I've had the watchful eye of the hawk for those of you who are carrying God's gifts for me. As we caught each other's eye, almost all the time I was able to receive the gift that you had for me. And I've realized that life is its own magic. As one great spiritual person put it, the world, the whole world, 
is its own magic. We can learn a lot, I think, from the experience of two cities, Nashville and Los Angeles, because in those two cities, to me, SA has thrived. In Nashville, to me, there has been an exceptional quality to the sexual sobriety in Nashville. To me, the numbers have been here. There might not be, be, be the the, the, the depth and breadth of the quality, but to me, the, Los Angeles is such a different town in terms of that there are so many here and there's so much mixing around and there's so much less, uh, uh, in, in a sense, as integrated community that there is in Nashville. But to me, there's an equal accomplishment in the two towns because there's an awful lot of, there's an awful lot of people all of a sudden in Los Angeles who are sexually sober. And that, to me, is a tremendous accomplishment and a tremendous compliment to the people who helped get things going here and whose lives carried this message. And then now each of your lives are carrying that same message to the people around you. I think when I first spoke on this point, I was speaking in Nashville, and I was talking about how there, Harvey and Jean were such powerful examples of wanting to follow this program as it was written down and the words in and, and along the words and lines of AA. And they had the humility to constantly seek support, help, and direction despite the pull of their sexaholic isolation. Their loving care and the help of people around them took a tender, fragile plant and nourished it through tough times. In other cities, we have seen AA start and stop or flourish for a while and then slow down. But we know from the Nashville and L.A. experience that each city and state and province is waiting for the people whose lives are so changed by SA that any of us drunken fools can sense that they have what we want and make us be willing to go to any lengths to get it. And then like in Nashville and L.A., you go from a few meetings to many, many meetings. And you send out tentacles that radiate to other nearby towns and cities, like the way L.A. came, or the way San Diego people came up here, and then got things going in San Diego. And so S.A.'s life-giving message gets carried to the one who still suffers. Finally, a word about progressive victory. As I was thinking about what I had said in Nashville, I thought of the phrase progressive victory and I was telling uh, Jim in Omaha, Father Jim, that wow, I realize that I'm not lusting as much and as frequently as I used to as I practice this program and uh, maybe that's the progressive victory. And he says, no, Jess, that's not it. He said what the progressive victory is is the willingness to ask for help the moment lust hits. And that as we do that more, we become more and more confident and more and more trusting and more and more knowing that it will work. Is the Dan, the frightened Dan that called me the other night, is he here? Okay. Okay. No, that's not, that's not, the other, it's the other one. That's, you're not the frightened Dan. <laughs> this guy called me from a motel two nights ago and he was just scared stiff. He was on his way here. 
from Nashville, and his Nashville sponsor had told him to call me for some goofy reason. So anyway, he did. And I said, man, you got nothing to fear. He said, you don't need to be afraid. I said, all you need to do is pray that God help you stop the lusting. He said, Jess, he said, I don't want to pray that God helps me stop the lusting sometimes. I said, well, then, simple. I said, I said, can you, can you name the numbers from one to ten? He said, sure. Okay, then you can say these words. Please, God, give me the desire to help me pray to stop lusting. You don't have to have the desire, you just pray for it. And you can say the words, I don't care whether you mean them or not. If you just say the words, you ain't gonna lust. So, he mulled that one over a little bit and said, okay, I think I can go to bed now. <laughs> I don't know how it worked out, but he and he was supposed to, he's supposed to show up here, so I'll be watching for him. But, but what, what that means is not about him, it's about me. Is the confidence that I have now in this program, it's not a foolish confidence, it's not a take it for granted confidence, it's not a complacent confidence. It's a solid confidence of like building a bridge and walking across it over deep water and I know it works. When I first practiced this program, I felt a lot like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when they came to that spot on the edge of the cliff and the posse was behind them and they jumped off and they couldn't swim and they didn't know whether they hit the rocks or not, but that was better than what was behind them. Okay, I took, like instead, again it says in the program, each new step of surrender felt it would be off the edge into oblivion. But we took it, but that's the way I felt. I don't feel that way anymore. I know all I do is pray and... The answer comes to me. So the thing that I've seen that this program has given me, that has taken me way beyond anything I ever imagined before, it has taken me to a place now where I see as I have widened out, thanks to, partly to my wife's teaching and prompting, I have widened out my understanding of what lust is. To the point, to me, what lust is, is wanting anything else than what God is offering me in this moment. Anything. Before, I used to think, okay, I don't like what's coming to me in the conveyor belt of life at this instant. I'll stick some lust in there and jump into another place on that conveyor belt. Okay, I thought that was lust. It is, but just one of the many forms. So here God is bringing me this great conveyor belt of life, and right now, this experience is what God is offering me. And if I push it away, I'm saying no to God. So what I've learned from this program is that moment by moment I have to welcome with joy each thing that God offers me in that moment. And that is something that, as I look at the other spiritual programs, that's what all the other spiritual programs are talking about. What does the Buddhist mean by enlightenment? He means a life without thought, in essentially, where you just act, pure action. It's like you're in a lake with a, a little child and the, your canoe tips over. What do you do for the next 30 seconds? Your, your thought is completely clear on doing what you can to save that little child and get them in back into that canoe. There's no big philosophizing or flashbacks to the past or into the future. You're just pure. And to me, that's the ideal life in any way, shape, or form. And here, it's what is so strange to me, is here's this goofy sexaholic who tried to get rid of sexual lust 
and ended up in this place that I had only dreamed of a long time ago. Because when I was 17 years old, I had a hunger for God then. And I went to our Baptist minister. I'd been baptized at 12 in our little Baptist church. And I went to our Baptist ministers. I, from the time I was 12 to 17, I became very aware of the contradictions of church life. There was a lot of stuff in there that didn't look very good on the parts of some people who seemed to be some pretty good, meaning people. And there were some other parts where people seemed to be lying like rugs. And there were other parts where people were just really beautiful. Well, it was a puzzle to me. And I said, you know, this is a minister. I said, there's got to be something more. And he referred me to a book. I think it was Butler's Life of the Saints. But I didn't think this was going to be written down in any book anyplace. But now, to me, this thing that I see now for me in my life today, is that something more that I think I was looking for then? So it's so odd that me following that simple little need to get rid of that lust in my life and save my marriage has led me to this place that has made my life so beautiful. And there's a clarity now today in my life and it's the most unbelievable feeling of how I feel living my life because it's like stepping up to the plate and hitting home runs. Deadly. It's like how Magic Johnson felt when he was on that basketball floor and he could throw the ball to the right man at the right time at the right place on the floor. And it's just such an amazing feeling. you know. And like the promises say, before we are halfway through. Well, it doesn't say how far before, you know, they don't say what, what that time is. You know, how many years is that? How many years is before we're halfway through? But it says before we're halfway through, we'll know those things that are in the promises. And it is so beautiful to be experiencing those. So this is what I've been doing as I have been walking among you. I have been receiving all the gifts you have for me, a loving glance and appreciative smile, stopping to give me the gift of you, stopping to me to give the chance to serve you. So now there are a new bunch of golden threads between me and so many of you. So thank you very much. like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.